Find 1 Timothy chapter 2. I told you we were going to uh, jump into Jonah after Judges, but uh, actually want to uh, announce that this coming Sunday, starting a new book on Wednesday nights. And I want us to talk about something this evening that is very applicable to our nation right now. And that has to do with 1 Timothy chapter 2. And I'm going to talk to you tonight about the priority of prayer and worship. The priority of prayer and worship. And we're going to look specifically at what the Apostle Paul has to say here about praying for our leaders and why. Uh, so 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our God, uh, of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So again, I want to talk to you tonight about the priority of prayer in worship. And we're going to talk, first of all, this evening about... The importance... Prayer. And then we'll talk secondly about diversity and prayer. We'll look at the different categories, different things he's saying here about prayer as we talk about that and then several other points that I will make. I want you to listen very closely, please, uh, to Romans chapter 13 as we open tonight. Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, 
Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now, this may surprise you a bit tonight, but in Paul's advice to Timothy, as Timothy pastors in Ephesus, what, what may surprise us is Paul's words pertaining to prayer for leaders. And he's not just talking about religious leaders or leaders in the church, but leaders in general, whether secular or sacred. Now, I'll be honest, some of our leaders are a whole lot easier to pray for than others, right? Right. When you have politicians who shred the first three chapters of Genesis, they support abortion, same-sex marriages, gender bending. It's hard to pray for them other than to pray for their salvation. Now, this has nothing to do with getting bound up in American politics. For me, it's basic Bible issues. Those are foundational chapters in the Bible that actually shape everything else in some way. Okay? But nonetheless, wherever politicians fall on the map, the Bible says here, we're pray for them. We see in our text tonight that the church is to be reminded that as we gather, we accomplish more on our knees through prayer than we do than by anything else. And so first of all tonight, what he talks about, what we see in the text, is the importance of prayer. The importance of prayer. First Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul, of course, to Timothy. Paul, remember, had been in Ephesus for how many years was Paul there? At least two. At least two that we know of. A church was established there. Paul moved on in his missionary endeavors and he left Timothy behind to pastor the church there. Now, Timothy was a young pastor, struggling, needed some guidance, needed some help. And for that reason, 1 Timothy was written. In 1 Timothy 1, we see there were problems at Ephesus such as doctrinal problems. In chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, he says, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Then in verses 18 and 19 he says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith they have suffered shipwreck. From in chapter 3, we see Paul discussing church leadership qualifications. Then in verse 14 to 16 of chapter 3, Paul sums up why he's writing 1 Timothy. He says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly, but if I'm delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God 
which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And so in a letter that is concerned with church order, church doctrine, church leaders, church governance, Paul says, first of all, and he proceeds to talk about what? Prayer. In other words, in the church, prayer is not secondary. It's a, it's a primary issue. It's not unimportant. It's not incidental. It's not secondary. It's core to everything that we do. As Dr. Donald Guthrie in his commentary on the pastoral epistles points out, he's not talking here about an issue of time as do this first. You know, pray first. Even before you have the call to worship, pray. That's not what he's talking about. This phrase right here in the Greek text, Donald Guthrie says, is referring not to chronology or order, but rather to importance. So, first of all, do what? Pray. As first order of business, importance-wise, pray. You know, it's sad how this is diminished. One, one pastor said one time, if I announce a banquet, people will come out of the woodwork to come and eat. But if I announce a prayer meeting, the ushers and deacons won't even show up. And that's sadly true oftentimes. Leonard Ravenhill said the church has many organizers but few agonizers. Many who pay but few who pray. Many resters but few wrestlers. Many who are enterprising but few who are interceding. A worldly Christian will stop praying and a praying Christian will stop worldliness. That's the difference. Ravenhill went on to say... That's the difference between the modern church and the early church. At one time, uh, John Sampy was the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in uh, Louisville, Kentucky. He went to Missouri to hold a revival meeting with one of his seminary graduates. And when he returned to campus, I mean, he was literally just set on fire from his experience being at that church. The church he'd gone to, again, pastored by one of his graduates. That pastor was so discouraged, he was about ready to leave the ministry. He was just tired of it. Tired of worldliness and sin in the church, the fact that nobody cared, just cold spiritual climate in the church, just really burdened about the church. And so he was going to quit. In fact, he told his wife he was going to get out of the ministry altogether. And his wife said, well... Before you do that, and she said, I'll, I'll support you. Whatever you believe God's leading you to do, I'll support you and follow you. But before you do that, I want to ask you uh, to take the next month or two, get up an hour early and for an hour, not just talking about praying, solidly praying for the church in the ministry here, and then let's talk. And so... This guy got busy doing that. He, in different, different deference to his wife, he took her up on that challenge. 
And he started praying for church members by name, leaders in the church by name. I mean, just started bathing that congregation, people in that congregation uh, by name. And as the weeks slowly went by, something happened in his heart, a spark. Uh, a love for God, a love for his people, a love for the community just sprung up like he'd never experienced before. He got involved in a time of personal revival in his own life. And then when he got in the pulpit, that fire spread to the people. And Dr. Sampy said, time I got there to lead the church in a revival, they were already in revival. It had nothing to do with me being there. And I mean, it really touched his heart. I believe that's why Paul is telling the church here in in chapter 2 about the primary importance of prayer and what it will do in the life of a, a man, a leader, a woman, a congregation. Paul said, When you gather, therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Prayer is to have a priority in the life of a Christian, and prayer is to have the priority in the life of a church. What did Jesus say the church is to be called? A house of prayer. That ought to say something to us about the importance God puts on it. As, as John R.W. Stott reminds us, the church is essentially a worshiping and a praying community. Stott writes that oftentimes somebody will say that evangelism is the church's number one priority. But he says, this is wrong. As important as evangelism is, Stott said that's wrong. Worship takes precedence over even evangelism because the greatest commandment that the Lord said existed was to love the Lord your God with all your heart. And then he said, loving your neighbor is second, and evangelism actually grows out of that command because you love your neighbor you share the good news of Christ with him. Prayer reminds us of our need. Salvation is not of us. Daily provision is not of us. And so what's prayer do? Prayer humbles us before God. Now, a second thing we see here is diversity in prayer. After the exhortation to pray comes the explanation of how to. Now, don't look at this as an exhaustive catalog of the different categories of prayer when we get into these in a moment. Because if it was an exhaustive list, we would see things like confession mentioned, adoration mentioned, so I don't think Paul is trying to give us an exhaustive list about all the different ways to pray. Uh, but let's look at the things he mentions. First of all, what's he mentioned? Supplication. Supplication. The idea behind this word is that we're lacking something that we need. And so this lack, this need, drives us to pray. Sometimes God sends these needs to get our attention and to get us to wake up. 
and seek Him. I think of the children of Israel uh, in the wilderness. When they got out in the wilderness, they didn't have food. They made supplication to Moses who made supplication to God and God supplied their need. God took care of the shortage. This coming Sunday, when we look at Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, it says, My God shall supply all of your need according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So Paul mentions supplication here. And then he uses the word prayers. Supplications and prayers. This is... This is just a general word, kind of a catch-all word for prayer. But it, it does emphasize the sacredness behind the discipline of prayer. We're praying to God. Prayer is actually part of our worship. And so it's sacred. There ought to be reverence in it. This word emphasizes all of that. And it points out that through prayer and worship, we're communing with God and fellowshipping with God. We're not focusing on anything at the moment other than Him and our relationship with Him. Now, the next word that he uses in the text is what? Intercessions. as your translation may say. This word refers to being able to sympathize and empathize with people in need who we're praying for. It carries with it the idea that in prayer we enter into pain with them, so to speak. We walk with them uh, through their hour of need. People share these needs so we can do what? Well, in Galatians 6.1, what Paul say? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. One way to help people bear their burdens is through praying for them and with them about these specific needs that are heavy on their hearts. Every believer has three avenues of help in prayer too, don't we? As we intercede. We have Jesus Christ. He's our high priest. And what's the book of Hebrews say about Him? He's our sympathetic high priest. <clears throat> he came in the flesh without sin, so He knows what it's like to walk in our shoes. So we can know when we go before Him in prayer, He's our helper, our intercessor, and He understands our need. We also have the help of the Holy Spirit, don't we? And Paul says in Romans 8, 26, sometimes we don't know how we ought to be praying for something. We know we ought to be praying for it, but we don't just don't really know. Do I pray this way or that way? And he says the Holy Spirit knows perfectly how to pray for that matter. He knows perfectly your need, and He knows perfectly the will of God and the heart of God, and He knows how to bring those two together. And so we need the Holy Spirit's intercessions. A third thing that, that we have when we think about this is we have one another. 
our brothers and sisters in the Lord who were interceding with us for our need. So, again, we have Jesus, our advocate. We have the Holy Spirit intercess intercessory praying for us. And we have one another. And so we're to have confidence and boldness in our intercessions. Uh, then Paul mentions something else. What, what's he say next? Thanksgivings. Thanksgivings. We shouldn't cease to thank God for the blessings that, that we already have. And so we need to give thanks. You know, Philippians chapter 4 talks about this as well. Paul says there, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And so all of our praying is to have an element of thanksgiving to it. And as I've said to you a thousand times, if you're praying about something that might have you low or discouraged, something you're going through that's tough, if you can't thank God for that circumstance in and of itself, you can thank God that that's the very thing He might be using to draw you closer to Him. He might be using that period of time in your life or that struggle in your life more than some of the happy things in your life. And so even in the bad, you can offer thanksgiving. So supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Now, after, after discussing those, I want you to see thirdly how he discusses the subjects. of our prayers. Maybe I ought to say the objects of our prayers. But you know what I'm getting at. He says, be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high places. So what are the subjects of our prayers? First of all, it'd be all, right? All people. Friend and foe. No one is beyond God's reach and prayer changes people. Folks, our prayers for people are to be as broad as the Great Commission. Think about that. Our prayers for people are to be as broad as the Great Commission. And then what does he say next? Kings... any in authority <clears throat> for kings. As, again, as Dr. Stock points out, here's a place, he says, where the book of common prayer that's used by a lot of Christian denominations gets it wrong. Because it states that only Christian leaders around the world are to be prayed for particularly. But as Stott says, remember at the time 
Paul wrote this, there wasn't such thing as Christian leaders around the world. It was a pagan world. Uh, even in the Old Testament, we see a pattern being set for this, don't we? Remember what Jeremiah told the people as they were getting ready to go away into exile? He said, when you get into exile, that 70 years, what are you to do? You're to pray for your leaders over you in the land and pray for the peace and prosperity of that land because as that land prospers, so you will prosper. And they were going into a pagan Babylonian kingdom. And yet Jeremiah told him to do that. Certainly we know that we are to pray for our president, whichever one he is right now. You know? <laughs> uh, we're to pray for the rulers of the world. The proverb says God directs the heart of the king as he directs the course of a river. Folks, how we feel about somebody doesn't diminish this exhortation one bit that we're to pray for them. Because I want you to remember, as Paul wrote this, who was the one in authority at the time? Nero. Nero was, he was, he was not only mean, but he was, a, he was truly probably a crazy man. Something, something wrong with him, really. You dig in and read much about Nero. He, there's <laughs> something wrong with him. He was the mad emperor. You what? He's called the mad emperor. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, they believe he's the one who burned down all the bad places in Rome so he could use it as an excuse to rebuild the city the way he wanted to. Uh, well, when that kind of came to light, he needed a scapegoat, didn't he? So Christians became his scapegoats. And so he blamed them for burning the city down. And so he said, they want to be the light of the world? I'm making the light of the world. So he dipped them in pitch and tar and bound them up to poles and set them on fire to light his beautiful gardens at night that he had. That's just one thing he did. He, he was crazy. So he's the one in charge when Paul is telling Timothy to pray for leaders. By the way, Nero is also the one, let's even take it a step further. What happened to the Apostle Paul? Beheaded. Who did that? Who gave that order? Nero. So Paul is actually asking for prayers for the very one who will end up giving the order that his own life will be taken. So again, people don't have to deserve our prayers to get our prayers. Right? Leaders don't have to deserve our prayers to get them. When you look at some of our elected officials, you may feel a little bit like Edward Hale, who, uh, while he was the chaplain of the U.S. Senate, somebody asked him if he prayed for the senators. He said, no, I look at the senators and I pray for the nation. <laughs> so anyway, we're to pray for our leaders. Not every ruler or leader 
is anointed by God, but every leader is appointed by God. And over and over again, the Scripture affirms this, that God raises one up, puts another down. And the authorities that exist are there because God, for His reasons, has put them in place. And oftentimes, He doesn't give us who we need, but who we deserve. Daniel chapter 2, verse 21 says, He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So again, every ruler, not anointed by God, but is appointed by God. And every ruler appointed by God is also, according to that passage I read in Romans 13, a servant of God for God's purpose. You know, the most important ally leaders ought to have are the prayers of Christians. Should be the best ally that leaders have. We need to pray for our military leaders. Pray for all of those in authority. Every area of your life, you have people in authority over you. Right? I guess unless you're the CEO of your own company, everybody has leaders over you. Leaders in government. Leaders at church. Leaders at work. You probably have community leaders. Pray for your leaders. And then the last thing Paul talks about here, he gives a motivation. Motivation for prayer. He says that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I know you would agree with me, there's a lot of unrest in the world today. And there's a lot of division in the world today. There's a lot of division in our own nation. And what happens when the world's in a mess? We love to point fingers, don't we? But is there any responsibility on our part? Have we prayed for leaders and the appointment of leaders like we should have? Have we prayed? Ray Stedman was a well-known pastor some decades ago in California. And he talks about a group of Christians who worked in one of the local prisons. And uh, there, was a, there was a group of these prisoners who, who had become believers, and they got together in that prison and started praying and praying and praying and praying for everybody in that prison, for the prisoners, for the guards, for everybody. <clears throat> the chief psychologist at the time of the California prison system was asked by the prison board why it was that out of all of the prisons in the state of California at the time, this one particular prison suddenly, for reasons nobody could put a finger on, had less riots, less trouble, less tragedy, less 
killings, all that kind of stuff in prison, had less than any other prison in the state. And he finally responded that the only thing he could account for, because he had learned of this group in this prison who had started praying, and about the time that they'd started doing it, and he kind of kind of looked back to see, and the only reason he could give to explain why things had changed so dramatically and drastically in that particular prison was this group of Christians in that prison who had begun meeting and praying. And he had to admit that's the only thing he could give to account for why things had happened that way. Again, look at, look at what he says here. That we may lead what? Peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And he answers, you know, when you say why, why pray for the world's leaders of all kinds that we might live peaceful lives is pleasing to God. Why is that pleasing to God? Well, verse 4 goes on to answer that. Who desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, the all here uh, means without distinction. In other words, all, regardless of nation, tribe, race, whether you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't necessarily have to mean every single person. It matter. It means God desires all, all people across the globe, all the nations. You get to the book of Revelation and who's gathered around the throne? People from every tribe and tongue and nation. Paul's emphasizing here to Timothy that what God is about is not just a Jewish mission. The early church really struggled with that. In the early years at least, they thought it was it was supposed to their work was confined to Jews. And they had to learn the tough way in the book of Acts. The gospels also for Gentiles. It's for all men. Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who believe, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. <clears throat> by praying for leaders and by having a nation, a society, a world that's at relative peace, it allows mission endeavors to go forward. What was it that helped the early church so much at this time? The Pax Romana. What was the Pax Romana? The Peace of Rome. That helped immensely in the early spread of the gospel. When nations go to war, when there's unrest, when crackdowns happen, Oftentimes, what's prevented? Mission work. Missionaries are brought home. Uh, there are nations around the world where the leaders won't allow Christian missionaries to come. 
You, you talk about the virus this year, COVID-19. The International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention has brought a lot of our missionaries home because of the virus. I'll give you an example. A couple of months ago, the pastor who used to be at University Hills, I had preached for me that Sunday that I was out. Coy Steele. He's, a, he's one of our missionaries in Africa working in a seminary there, but because of COVID, he and his wife have been sent home this year. So different things happen in the world where the peace and health and safety in the world are interrupted in some way, and it impacts the furtherance of the gospel. And Paul's saying here, God's plan is for the gospel to get out there to all peoples, tribes and tongues and nations. And we need to be praying for leaders so that they'll be making decisions in nations around the world so that missionaries and the gospel advancement can continue. And that's the main motivation why he's saying what he's saying here about praying for leaders. That doors for the gospel can be kept open. I don't know if you're paying much attention, and I'm not, I'm not going to start listing specific cases. I'll, I'll give you one just as an example. I don't know if you're following some of what's going on in America through this COVID. Folks, I really think, in some sense, some of our religious liberties are being threatened. It's happening. And I'll give you an example of this. One of our Southern Baptist churches, Capitol Hill Baptist in D.C. Mark Dever, you may have heard of Dr. Mark Dever, prolific writer, uh, heads up something called Nine Marks Ministry, the Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Capitol Hill Baptist in D.C., on a Sunday morning, they run about 850 people. Well, through COVID, uh, Mark really has a conviction that a church family is to meet together. He thinks that's the biblical pattern. You're not supposed to have multiple services. You're not supposed to have satellite campuses. If you have multiple services, let that other service go and be their own church. If you have satellite campuses, let that satellite campus be its own church. He thinks the biblical pattern is for a church family to, to meet together, fellowship together. Um, so, He's very much opposed, even in COVID, to divide up the congregation and meeting in different ways that they ought to meet together. So to meet together, they went to another church in the D.C. area outside so they could do the social distancing and all of that and keep everything in check with, you know, doing it right. Well, the leadership in D.C., political leadership, they were letting some of these left-wing protests made thousands and thousands of people gather, but they told Capitol Hill Baptist, you can't meet together. We're, meet, we're meeting outside. We're social distancing. Can't have a group over such and such. Well, we had this in D.C. last weekend and this, and there were this many thousands reporting on, you can't meet. Well, they actually took D.C government to court. And I don't know if you follow much of the court. Uh, Capitol Hill won. Capitol Hill won. That's just one example. 
we're, we're seeing how our religious liberties could be threatened by people who are in office. How the gospel could be limited. And Paul is saying that ought, that ought to be very much behind praying for kings and those in authority. That those who are there don't end up making decisions that's, that's going to negatively impact the church. I think this is probably a failure in my own comprehension, but using that example in D.C., um, I, I, I feel like there's a real disconnect in my mind between the message in Timothy that mm -hmm. you're preaching on today right. and what's in Romans 13. And my question is, what is a, what does a believer owe to the authority when the authority is unjust, right? Yeah. And, and our prayer, certainly. Sure. But not, but in that instance, there was opposition, right? right. There should be opposition to um, Nazism or yeah. Bolshevism, you know, those kind of things that, that clearly have not advanced the gospel and clearly have not brought people yeah. to Christ. And so why, why am I having a hard time with yeah. Romans 13? Well, you bring up a very good point that there, there is a, I believe anyway, there is a legitimate case to be made for civil disobedience. I think what Paul is talking about as long as the governing authorities are doing what they're appointed to do, you know, punish wrongdoers, evildoers, and all that, and make laws that are good for society, Christians ought to support them, even if we don't agree with every single tax or every single law. We support them. But, and we ought to be good citizens. And Peter speaks of that also in 1 Peter chapter 2. But I think there's a, a place where governing authorities can overstep their bounds of what God's given them to do. And that's why the apostles in the book of Acts said, you've commanded us to do that, do such and such, you know, stop preaching, and, and we're not going to obey you. We respect you, but we're not going to obey you in this. We've got to obey God rather than men in this. And so I, I think if governing authorities ask us to do something that is contrary to our faith, then we have a responsibility to stand up for our faith. And that's, you know, I know that can get kind of hairy at times. And I do think in cases of civil disobedience, if, if, if there's something we have a right to do that, we also have to be prepared to suffer the consequences of it. Uh, yes? What about the... When we pray for our leaders, that doesn't mean we have to always um, pray. Um, I'm going to call it appear to be positive things. Right? Can't we play, pray for God's righteous indignation to to? You know what I'm saying? I, mean, I think about King David and the sure. stuff he prayed. Sure, praise God alive, man. Well, like I say, I I think of these politicians who shred these foundational chapters in Genesis. Right. You know, life, we're created in the image of God, but they would promote abortion even up to, you know, a baby being born and the doctor can take its life. You know, no limits even. I mean, just kicking open the doors to anything that they promote that, um, 
All this gender bending, you know, we're created in the image of God. God created man, male and female. How many genders? Two. Two. And by gender bending these politicians that are for today, you know, if Johnny wants to be Jill, Jill wants to be Johnny, they don't want to be something else, you know. Uh, again, that's shredding Genesis. These politicians for marriage being defined as anything. What's Genesis 2 say? Between a man and a woman. So, you know, we've got these politicians today pushing these agendas that shred these foundational chapters of, of Genesis. Well, I have to pray that God would open their eyes to see the error of that. Uh, I'm not praying for them to have success in pushing their agenda on all that through. I'm certainly not going to be praying in that direction. So... So yeah, I think I think praying for politicians doesn't mean that you're always praying for them to have success. I'm sorry, what now? No, I said we let pray to get struck by lightning. And Again, not not trying to be oriented around parties or what drives me is issues. Yes. What does this person stand for and how does it line up with the Bible? And I wish that's what would guide Christians voting. Do their positions line up with the scripture? So anyway. Uh, why is it important? Again, why is it important for governments to be like they should so the gospel can get out? Why is it so important for the gospel to get to the ends of the earth? Well, here again, he answers that question in verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. There's not one God for one nation and another God for another nation and a dozen different plans of salvation. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And that's why we need to get the gospel out around the world because there is only one way of salvation. So you see how all, all this ties together, our, our motive for praying for these rulers. It's, it's, we're not to be driven by, will this guy or this woman in office give, give me everything I want? It's what impact on the gospel will this have? And, and that's, that's the primary motivation driving our prayers for leaders. So, uh, what decisions do you need to make in your life to make prayer a priority? Staying up late after everybody goes to bed, have quiet time early, or in the, in the middle of the day sometime, have a place you get away where you can be alone and pray. What, you know, do you need to make some kind of adjustments like that? 
Is your prayer life stuck in a rut? You know, he mentions here again all these different categories, and we list others like confession, adoration, uh, the biblical prayers that we find in the Bible. You know, we ought to list out what those prayers, what the person is praying for. Incorporate those petitions into our prayer life. Don't just get stuck in a rut, you know, where you pray praying the same thing all the time. Now I lay me down to sleep. You know, look at what the biblical writers were praying for. And get a sheet of paper and write those petitions out and incorporate those things into your own prayer life. Uh, don't get stuck in a rut. Uh, target the world in your praying. Target the world in your praying. God has a heart for the world. Again, the Great Commission shows that. And then deal with any sins or attitudes in your life that are preventing you from praying effectively. Because if there's sin in your life, as David said in Psalm 66, if I regard sin in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. So, what decisions do you need to make to make it a priority? Schedule-wise, how, how can you, you know, lay out your daily life so prayer is a priority in your daily schedule? Don't get stuck in a rut. Target the world in your praying and deal with sins that are preventing you from having an effective prayer life. Anything else in closing? That uh, movie that... Uh... He saw the war room. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, the lady had a prayer book in there. Okay. And then she said, well, if you can find an empty space in it, go ahead and put your prayer there. Right. So she had a limit mm-hmm. as to the number of things she could pray for. I wonder if that's a, a good idea, too, to, depending on how much time you're devoting to your prayer life, if you... Maybe you need to put limits on certain things. Otherwise, it can get out of control. And or maybe pray for different things on different days. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's not kind of interesting. Yeah. John Wesley said that any day that he had not prayed for a solid four hours was a wasted day. Any day that he had not prayed for four hours was a wasted day. You say, well, they didn't have as much to do back then. Well, he went went around everywhere on horseback. So he had to deal with some things that, you know, he didn't have conveniences that we have. So you've got to balance that out. Yeah, he may didn't have some of the challenges that we have, but he had some others that we don't have. So... But anyway, think of the commitment in that. You could pray riding a horseback better than we could pray driving a car. Don't close your eyes if you're praying driving your car. (laughs) (laughs) And if you're closing your eyes at the red light praying, open your eyes there too so that when the light turns green, you go. (laughs) And not like these people on their phones. (laughs) Charlie, would you, uh, anything else? Now, we go away tonight. 
You know, we've heard about prayer, prayed for leaders and why. All that's nice. We leave. Do nothing with it. I've wasted your time. You've wasted mine. So again, how does your life need to change to put this text into practice? Charlie, would you uh, let me get back around to Father, thank you for this study tonight. And uh, this is something we need to hear. Considering the mess that our world is in right now, we need to make time to come to you and lay our concerns out, Father. Father, when we look at the mess that we're in today, I just think in the midst of the mess, you can handle it. That everything that's going on right now, I'm going to last forever. And none of this stuff even surprises you. In every place that something is going on in this world, you were there. You never leave us alone. You're always with us to guide, to lead, and give us wisdom. And I pray, Father, that we would not only pray, but get on our knees and cry out to You for our only hope that's in You and You alone. We look at man, Man seems to put band-aids on things and kind of makes everything worse. We need you to work, Father. We need your hand. And we pray for your mercy. And Lord, as I continue tonight, I just want to lift up Dr. Willis to you, Father. Continue to be with him, strengthen him each day. We pray for Harvey and uh, Shirley Larry. Uh, we pray for Shirley as she care gifts to Harvey. We pray that you continue to give him comfort, give him peace. We pray for Susan Ressler as she uh, deals with the shingles. Uh, we thank you, Father, that we did get a praise report tonight that she's doing better. And we just ask Father to continue to work in her uh, that she might be restored to health. We think of all the others on the list right now, Father, but you know their needs. You've heard each name. And I know, Lord, that you're working in their life right now. And we just thank you and praise you for what you're going to do. And we, Father, that go with us the rest of this week. Uh, keep it on our minds to pray for our leaders. And Make us aware of those that come across our path that you have sent. That we would take time to speak to them. That we would take time to listen. But most of all, Lord, we would share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yes. And I pray, Lord, that this coming Friday at my <coughs> funeral, 
I'm going to have relatives there, Father, I know without a shadow of a doubt they do not have a relationship with you. I pray, Lord, that through the message at this time, the Holy Spirit would convict their hearts and that they would not leave that grave side without knowing Jesus Christ. I just praise your name for who you are, Father, and just look forward to what you're going to be doing. In Jesus' name. Amen.